All right, welcome and hello everyone uh, listening to the Education Newscast. So like you're already here now, we have a special episode uh, in English and I'm also very grateful to have a guest from the US. Uh, actually, I, I know Rudyard also from another podcast where, where he... Yeah, where he gave his uh, experience. The podcast was called or is called Learning Experience Leaders, I think. And yeah, as we have a special, how to say, uh, program uh, at SAP Training and Enablement around learning experience, I thought this is a great opportunity yeah, to, to touch base also and have an external point of view uh, on the topic. So yeah. Uh, It's great that you're here, Rudyard, today and that you take the time. Uh, so could you perhaps just uh, briefly introduce yourself and uh, also, let's say, tell us a little bit more about yourself and about the journey you've been on now and where you're currently? Of course, of course. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you again for the invitation. And this is, of course, a, a very important topic to me and my profession, my interest. So I'm grateful to be able to learn, share and learn more. So uh, for me, I, I've been building software products uh, as a UX researcher or in the design of UX, as well as as a product manager for the last four years. Um, so before that was digital marketing and film production. So there were experiences that were happening before that were important to me. I was experienced or introduced, sorry, to software development by way of a graduate degree that I was doing in instructional design. And with that effort were the frameworks around instructional design and even cognitive psychology that were extremely interesting to me. And they had a strong correlation to the frameworks for user experience design. And so, Of course, how we, or now that we're learning experience, there are learning experience designers where before there wasn't. And so when building enough products, I came to know that there was also a product management side to the user experience design. So a counterpart to that. And that's in the case of software development, kind of the best practices, key roles in doing that. And so I launched into product management in that discipline, also just coming from understanding user experience design and research, and first landed in the healthcare industry uh, and worked on some products that connected patients and their healthcare providers. And with this effort, I proved that hypothesis that product management was the right place for me. If you want to call it uh, my own personal learning plan or my self-directed learning, that's what I was trying to figure out. And I proved that that was correct. And so the next step was actually moving from healthcare to an ed tech SaaS platform. I had come to believe that education was the most valuable product that we could ever offer in the case that through education, we realize as individuals our potentials. And that affects not only us, but future generations as well. And so from that, moving into that EdTech SaaS platform, that was validated, or I proved that I could both be a product manager and a product evangelist in the EdTech space. And in my opinion, that's what makes the best product managers are those that do believe highly in the product or in the cause. And so 
with two EdTech platforms as a PM. I, I moved on to another EdTech platform as well. It's called Pluralsight uh, most recently and learned a ton about education as a product and as an experience. And we'll talk more about it, but mm-hmm. the fact that when you can create instruction as an experience, like owning experienced designers, is a powerful way to approach the desired outcome you're looking for with those learning. Yeah, and all this sounds really, really great to me. Um, this is Christoph uh, speaking, uh, Thomas' co-host, for those who are maybe listening into our podcast for the first time. Um Rudyard, I'm really happy to to have you here uh, with us um, b- because it's um, affecting my uh, home turf. So my um, um, favorite topic. I'm as I'm, um, yeah, learning experience designer at SAP since since a couple of years now, and also coming from the user centered design and user experience um, world. So I'm really happy to have you here. I'm grateful to be here. <laughs> and uh, Rudyard, so I think Pluralsight, some, some of us now, I think SAP is even a customer, so it, I think it provides yeah, learning offerings for, for, for more development and IT target groups. So what are you currently de- dealing with uh, in, the, in your current uh, job or job yeah. function? Yeah, so and I can share just a little bit about tackling mm-hmm. at Pluralsight and then, of course, what I'm tackling now. But mm-hmm. um There is a need in most every um, EdTech platform. There's content, right? It's got to get there somehow. And there's lots of different ways to produce the content. And that can obviously come from internal teams, which is the experience I had at the other EdTech SaaS platform I worked for, where I actually managed the team of instructional designers or learning experience designers to be able to create impactful content and even go through a, uh, an API or use of t- further technology to then measure the impact of that content in the tool we were training for. And so allowing just for more ROI or return on investment, being able to be communicated with the customers. And then moving through to Pluralsight was the fact that they hire subject matter experts from the industry to be able to create the content for their platform. So they're, they're partners in many ways. And with that model, there is a need to then have a systematic way to create the content to ensure quality, consistency, and, and speed, right, as well. And so in that space, I was tackling how a author, uh, subject matter expert like you know, security or data science um, would, and software development itself as well, would take something from their head, which is really hard because that's years and years and years of experience, and then craft it in a way that would complement the format and overall mission of Pluralsight delivering that high quality content in a very targeted way. And so my role focus at Pluralsight was to be able to create a content creation process that would enable speed. Again, it's not going to be good enough to just tell an author to see that. Most of you, I'm positive, have created things before in this time. It's, it's a complicated process. 
process to consider both how to deliver it, instructional design best practices, then how to record it and edit it, and many other things that go into this content creation process. And so it was enabling it to be more efficient as well as for it to scale. So allowing any number of authors to be able to create content at any one time and not need more people, more heads, more hands in the pot kind of said. And so that was something that we actually leaned a lot on to, to generate these net new experiences. We leaned a lot on the human centered design, right? That learning experience design is built upon as well. Thinking of the human or the user first in that experience. And of course, outputs, but those are more of reference points than blocks you build on. And so from those experiences, I actually, as I referenced earlier, there's been a series of hypotheses in my career. You could think of it as a scientific experiment. I think a lot of people approach it this way, but don't maybe recognize that. And so the the next for me was actually the fact that Pluralsight produces content that's for immediate or intermediate to high level expertise, professionals that are very in very entrenched in their roles, and they need to be continually pushing the their understanding to be able to stay up, up to speed for current standards. And my interest is actually lower than that. And lower, I mean by lower in experience or expertise. And so there's this whole space that's around the beginning of skill development and how that equates also to skill development for the tech industry. It's kind of a black box right now as far as how you skill up in a, let's say, a young adult or anyone in a different stage in their career, but how you skill up from, I know these things outside of tech and what do these industries or these professions or these organizations mean inside of technology as well. So it's not just development or something just around software, but it's bigger than that. And so right now, the effort is understanding how to bridge this chasm that exists between the fact that there are, at least in the U.S., I can't say worldwide, but in the U.S., there's around 700,000 open tech roles. This is, of course, prior to COVID-19. So that mm. is also in big flux. And there's more of them. As you know, maybe both of you have heard, but those companies that are growing the most right now are online, right, with like Amazon right. and other mm. things. And those are very much... In the case of even remote work, those are highly influenced by the work that's being done in the software development industry. Those are almost naturally things you can do on your own. But fact being is there's this huge need in the tech industry for talent. And then there's actually a 43% rate of college graduates who are underemployed when they graduate. And an average, at least in the U.S., is $41,000 of debt. And so... There are these hungry young professionals trained through, of course, their experience in formal education, but they don't know a place that values the skills they just learned. Sometimes they don't even know what the skills are they just learned. 
and there's 30% of students who visit a career counselor while in studies, let's say in the university. And only there's again, only 30% of students that visit. And of those, there's only 60% who find it helpful. And so there's, there's a, an effort that I'm moving towards. This is kind of the space, but it's outcomes that are, that look like strengths that are able to build career roadmaps. So it's almost like the scaling of the deliverables of the best career counselors in the industry. How might more people gain access to the best tools to build a career roadmap, right? And that's enabled by the potential of those people. And so my personal mission statement, and we can talk obviously many much more about this, but my personal mission statement, which I don't think is unique to me, but as I enable the potential of others, I'll reach mine. And so I want to, to at, you know, as best I can continue to push the envelope on skill, skilling up people to reach their potentials, especially in the case of the tech industry. And that's just a little bit about what I'm, where my headspace is at right now. Mm. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing. And, and actually, because you, men, you probably mentioned uh, <clears throat> how this is different uh, in different regions, uh, I just can say for Europe and Germany, we have this similarly. Uh, we, we probably don't have uh, high uh, unemployment, but we have this skills demand and supply gap also. So like... Uh, like there are quite, I don't know the number, but there are quite some uh, open positions yeah, in the tech industry or in tech jobs, not just the industry, also the automotive industry, for example, now more and more is uh, mo moving to become software companies, partially at least, and they mm -hmm. there are a lot of open yep. positions. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a great thing. Uh, uh, also for the society, uh, an important thing to support young people and everyone who has kids who are in school or university and know how they struggle or how you struggle by your own what to do where are my strengths where i'm am i moving to what is my mission uh, i think that's, yeah these are very important questions uh, that's, that's great yeah and you are hitting a, a very important point there Thomas, I think, uh, as you mentioned, that um, the way of um, a car or a car experience is designed today has has literally changed. And um, we saw it with Tesla. They had a completely different approach to, to uh, think mobility there. And um, I think all the, these uh, changes that are coming along through digitization, um, yeah, have also a huge impact in, in learning, as we, we have just heard. Um, but experience is, I think it, it has been always there, the, the demand for um, a learning experience. Um, if you look at a good teacher, um, teachers in school or at university, they are creating learning experiences, I think, and they might be great in that or not so perfect. And um, it's it's really um, the, the same goal, uh, as you mentioned, to, to leverage this um, this potential of, of any individual learner. So may, maybe um, um, should we at this point already jump into this um, learning experience um, part? Yeah, um, yeah, so not? how would how would you then define a, a real good learning experience 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And I, I was going to say, too, is that with learning experience design and in this space in realizing the potential or learning these skills, there's the traditional, like, the university model. And, of course, there are also um, things like boot camps, right, or other mm. non-traditional educational approaches. Mm. And there are, in every industry, there are the leading there are the leaders, those that are leading the way, and then there are those that are falling behind. And that's not just the traditional education system, but in any system of learning. And so I was going to say is that um, the best learning experiences in my, in my professional experience thus far are something that is designed for the learner right, and driven by outcomes are some two simple concepts to it. But mm. when we're designing any kind of instruction, and we'll see this in our traditional experiences, there's often kind of a, a rules that are guiding how they do it. And I, I know, um, Thomas, you mentioned this in your, you know, your write up and post about the fact of the, uh, the learning experience design as a new paradigm, right. And this, the, fact that we're often driven by what does this process look like more than what the outcome is. And it's often considered more about who's creating it rather than who are they creating it for when we mm -hmm. go about creating, when we do or design any learning experience. And so good learning also for adults, which is, what I think we're focused on right now, while children will continue to benefit from these efforts, we could in many ways focus on the adults in the professional learning space. And it has to do everything with the application of the skills. And so if a, if a design, if a learning experience does not fit into a space where the learner knows how it's going to apply and how it's going to benefit them in their professional role, or even in a personal way as well, then if it's not clearly connected, that content is amiss and is immediately by the learner deemed not worth their time. There are, um, which we can talk about later as well, there are different technologies, right, that allow for this best learning experience in professional development and was also mentioned in, in your Thomas article about LXPs, right? Learning experience mm -hmm. platforms. And I've been talking to adults who or learners who have had access to certain learning experience platforms. And there's immediately a barrier that you come up against when presenting content to a professional in way of like a learning experience platform where the question immediately comes to the mind of the learner. Did my manager give me this content? Is it relevant to a, like explicitly very clearly tied to the skills I'm developing right now? And if those two things aren't met or clear to the learner, there's a dismissal like, Oh no, that's not relevant to me. Even by the title of the learn the content that's presented, 
you can learners can immediately dismiss them without even diving in to learn more or see what it is about. So again, that that personalization, which is the use of technology, and we'll talk later about like machine learning and other other techniques used, but that's in very important in the good learning experience. Um, the other is the case that, like we talked about, the best ones they don't learning experiences do not rely on you know cramming or this sense that there's kind of the massed practice and and this we'll get into a little bit later as well as far as methods go but um, there are certain key principles that have to be incorporated into the learning experience that allow for a true building of new schema or a true expansion of understanding and a, a strong mm -hmm. connection made to prior knowledge, what it is they knew previously, that will allow for it to stay with them or build them, really. I mean, we're not just, we're not building experiences, we're building people. And people no, are but built But the experience through... is always in, no, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, no, no, I, I think that... No, no, the experience is always inside the person. You can, that's also mm -hmm. sometimes why I have a little bit uh, challenge with the title. You can't design the experience. You can ex uh, design that the experience happens, like the frame, mm -hmm. the technology also. Yeah. It, 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 do you, mm -hmm. which methods or, or approaches do you use? So we can talk about technology later, but uh, from a yep. uh, Uh, methodological point of view of course there are many out there like design thinking or uh, yeah. others so which, which one uh, came across uh, uh, good for you or which are helpful for you yeah yeah no I think um, you know for a long time which I don't think I'm unique it's unique to me but the um, user experience design especially as relating to design thinking right? Mm. That's been something that I've continued to uh, build upon. I, and to say just back to myself was the fact that, not to always talk about myself, I promise I won't do that a lot. But um, <laughs> for me, there was and has been a draw to building empathy. And that's why I chose to focus on One was instructional design to understand what people needed to learn and why they needed to learn it and how they learn best. And then going into user experience research and design, but those were around how does a user or, of course, a learner, how do they experience the situation or experience the challenges or experience these tools that we're building for them? And then through product management, those are tied very closely to that role of a product manager is thought to be and in the best industries or not industries, but the best companies are relied upon as the user expert. You're the one that knows them best. And the only way you get to know them best is by spending time with them and listening, asking questions, of course, as well, but building the empathy. So mm -hmm. in case of the um, design thinking and many others that I think are pretty parallel to that is really generating that love for the problem, not jumping too far ahead and thinking about the solution. 
where if we're solution, and this is something we can uh, also talk more about, but in methodologies, I just couldn't say enough about truly understanding the problem and knowing it inside and out. Um, and that's something that I haven't done before and it's not turned out well. And then other times I've really tried to do it well and there were some fantastic outcomes to it. And so those are the things that I think some a professional needs to have in order, even needs to have in order to create these good learning experiences. Yeah, great. Yeah, Christoph, do you have any questions towards the methods or so? Or um, not um, questions. I think <clears throat> a little comment. Um, I um, again like this approach of having um, this uh, or coming from the user-centered uh, point of view in, in user-centered design, uh, whatever it, it is, it may be a, a car, a, a dashboard in a car or um, some everyday um, things that you use in, in your household. Um, whatever it is, it, it should be um, designed for the, the human in the center and then this happens what you described before thomas that the experience um is is growing in in the mind or the head of of people and uh, that's that's important and um yeah therefore um, I, i think um coming from from that point of view is is really the the crucial point here And Rudyard, I, I think for many people in the learning industry, it's there are some new twists to that because uh, I, when I started some many years ago, uh, also in training and people development, it was more static approaches like the Eddy model, which is more sequential yeah. and not this iterative user-based, where make fast a prototype, understand the problem, understand the user. Oh, did you do, is this in the US and in your experience also similar or? Yeah, so I was going to say is uh, like the Addy or other models that have existed previously, I think mm. a lot of them have had a lot of foundation or the genesis of those were absolutely satisfying business requirements. Mm. So there's the, the yeah. approach that is feel good, this is wonderful, and I think it can often be kind of synonymous with those that don't maybe believe so adamantly about human-centered design in the fact that, okay, great, I under understand you want to understand people and their problems, but what about the business? What about revenues? What about the, the dollar? The, you know, what's, what's at risk here if we take the time to do human-centered design that's not focused on profits, at least initially, right? Those things aren't mm. foremost when designing for them. And so I think, like you mentioned as well, we've come from output-based design and we've come from business-generated or business-motivated design of instruction or learning experiences to be able, and, and, and the momentum or the pendulum has shifted closer to the user or the person who's receiving it. And I think that there's still a balance because you're going to need to satisfy the needs of the business while pushing for human-centered design. And so I guess I just mentioned that to say 
this isn't all roses and sunshine and go ahead and take whatever time you want to just do whatever you think is best for the user. But I think that there's also an iterative approach to most everything. So if this is the, let's say the, the goal, the outcome, the experience we're driving for, call it a, which we've done in product exercises, instead of thinking of a, or let's say you, you try to imagine a five-star experience for your learner or your user. So something that would be from beginning to end the best you could do. And that would leave this best impression or best results for the learner. And then you scale out even more and think about what's a seven-star experience look like? What's a 10-star experience look like? Going further and further out to push what might this look like if it were in some ways limitless or without constraints we see now. But even with all those exercises, which are incredibly important, they're only important once you're able to take what you think of as the absolute ideal and then trace them all the way back to what am I going to do tomorrow to be able to bring about or build that outcome that we're looking for and maybe even a few years out. And so those organizations that aren't doing human-centered design or aren't given the latitude to do that by, let's say, leadership, etc. again, it's more and more common, but still many don't or aren't given the ability to do that. It's, I think, a need for them to think, what could I do tomorrow? Again, what's my big, big goal? And what could I do tomorrow to influence towards that? And allowing for it to be just more bite-sized pieces. Um, mm. And I think that, that that is even learning itself, right? It's always broken up into, you could say, chunking or many other things where it's just, cool, that's that's wonderful way out there. But what about next? And how do I best group these things? Um, you know, no more than five things, right? As we learn also from Miller's Law. And making sure that these are packaged in best steps to scale to those experiences, those truly human-centered design. In many ways, you're going to have to win that ability. You're going to have to earn it. You're going to have to push mm. for it. You're going to have to be a thought leader around it, like you, both you gentlemen are doing. And that's um, a big task for someone who thinks it's important but doesn't know how to do it yet. And so, again, <laughs> if you can think of it yourself as human-centered design, I'm thinking for next steps and building on to those ideal outcomes. Uh, could you share some examples where you saw a real exceptional learning experience? So, so we know yeah, it absolutely. from the UX. Or, mm -hmm. So as mentioned just a little bit earlier, we talked about the space of learning new skills. And one mm -hmm. that's been of, of big interest to me is around the boot camp space. In, mm. in many ways, it's productizing education more than instruction or curriculum. So the experience of these young professionals or transitioning professionals to the tech industry. Boot camps are at least currently mainly focused on software development skills as well as some data science and even edging into product management. And so do you want me to define any more around boot camps at all? 
before um, I jump into that as an yeah, example. yeah, perhaps we just can say one one two more words. I, I also in Germany there are some like code code university in Berlin, so there are some boot camps popping up as yeah. also as a new trend. I think in the US it's even it's also a big mm-hmm. trend uh, uh, as a education product. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Perhaps one yes. two words. Yeah, so boot camps, of course. Uh, the word, of course, derived from the fact of like training in a very short amount of time, uh, usually kind of very exigent or very um, intense. In the case that it's a short interval, lots of learning, and so the boot camp has been used in many ways around like armed forces, right? They use boot camps to train mm-hmm. those yeah. that are being introduced to that service, but. The same concept has been borrowed to also describe the experience that can be or is being crafted to allow for uh, an individual to transition from a non or sometimes parallel tech career, then transition into a tech industry in a certain expertise like software development, data science, or product management. And so the duration of these boot camps depends on the model of the different boot camps, but can be anywhere from, and again, there are varied results. The, the, the jury's still out on how impactful a boot camp can be and what does the length of it need to be and what does the structure of it need to be, but usually it's under a year if not less than that, where someone can, again, make that transition, learn all of the critical things. A lot of them are actually boot camps are moving to a um, shared revenue model where the fact is you don't pay for it until you graduate or sorry, a a deferment. So you defer your, your, uh, the tuition until after you get Mm. hired and then they take a portion of, your salary and pay the back the boot camp, and so you can get into it for free essentially. And those are becoming more and more common. So, I wanted to just highlight one of the examples around a boot camp to give better understanding of how this lots of learning in short intervals is working in some ways I've seen best. And so, one of the one of the, the boot camps I wanted to highlight that I've learned a lot about and um, impressed by is actually a boot camp that's in the Salt Lake City area, which is called V School. And before I get into V School, do you want me to add anything, any other context to it? No, no, no. Oh. Okay, keep going. So <laughs> V School boot camp. Um, is one that's actually focused on being able to deliver these transition experiences for any young professional or professional, but also focusing on on audiences like veterans uh, or other or immigrants, right? Others that really could use that jumpstart into a very lucrative profession that is sometimes very much independent of location, right? Remote. And so this V-School Bootcamp has created something that they call responsive learning. 
And we talked just a little bit about how the best experiences consider they don't at all use the strategy of crammed or mass uh, practices, but figure out, okay, how can I uh, space my learning? There's spacing, right, in strategy, as well as like variable ratio or interleaving this practices. And there's also these things like deliberate practice that are also great strategies to learning. But in this, which again, this experience with responsive instruction. So again, there are these students that are brought into the course. And B-School has been around for about, uh, I think, around six, seven years now. But they were bringing students um, through like a 12-week course or of study, right, to help them learn these basic skills and then move them into a space that allowed them to practice the skills or build something to show to employers. This is how this works or how I work. Mm -hmm. May, may, so, I, may okay. I ask a question at this point? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I think this is a, a very good example for, for one point that um, I have in mind uh, very often. Um, if you talk about the different uh, types of learners that you have, the different target groups like veterans, immigrants and, and other people. I think um, you have very uh, a variety of different learning needs and very individual learning strategies that come together there. And um, how do you deal with that um, uh, in this uh, V-School approach? Um, is this um, what responsive learning means that you can can really um, provide to the different people and the different types of learners um, the best fitting um, um, learning experience? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, in case of their backgrounds, like the various audiences, um, there is lots of experience they come with, right? And I can't speak to yeah. you as an expert on running vSchool. I don't work for vSchool, so I can't mm -hmm. uh, tell you all of the things that they take into account. But it's the case of the fact that they come with their own preconceptions. They come with their own experiences. They come with their own bias. They come with their own, um, in some ways, emotional baggage, right? Mm -hmm. If all these different experiences have mm -hmm. to happen. And so there's, there's as these boot camps are understanding there's a very important vetting process. And it's not vetting to see who would be a great software developer and who wouldn't, but more of the fact we've found most success with these types of learners. And we're going to look through who is it that's applying to this and figure out if they are a best fit for our model. And if not, of course, there's many others that they can research or go after, but um, the case that there's empathy in how something's designed. And, and to your point about responsive instruction, that has a lot to do with actually just the, the time frame. And so there were, and if I may, I'm just going to jump back into this to mm -hmm. and account for your question. So the fact that there were these students that were going through these courses, but they were often not ready to level up or not ready to get to the next step. And so there would be um, a chance for these students to kind of start over again. 
but that wasn't always the best result or, hey, let's just wait for the next cohort that comes through and you'll kind of pick up where you left off. And in the meantime, you should just practice. And oftentimes there were students left behind, which is not unique to V-School. Lots of boot camps experience this. That's intense course of study and these skills that quite very well, quite frankly, they didn't have before were trying, they were being required and at a quick pace. And so sometimes they even just, or could be in a, an approach is to add on more time, give the students more time at the end as well to cover what we didn't get to or what they couldn't get to. And when we think about time for learning, oftentimes that's the enemy. Sorry, I want to repeat that to not make it confusing. <laughs> that's, no, that's good. When we cram things into time, learning suffers. It can very well and does suffer when we have to time box it. Learning is and needs to be responsive. Right? Mm-hmm. So how do you remove time from learning or that constraint of time to learning but still have the outcomes you're looking for, your business needs, right? This is still V-School is, has these outcomes they need to reach. And so instead of moving students to a later cohort or, you know, letting them kind of step aside and let others go ahead of them and then jump back on with a cohort that was behind them, um, they decided that, hey, let's make it so that the time frame is what they decide, the students, until they're able to reach the efficiencies or proficiencies that are required. Kind of like competency-based learning, which is pretty common in higher education or is becoming more and more common. It's Mm -hmm. not grades, but it's competence. You can get to that as fast as you can and move on. And so there's the mastery-based learning uh, that allows and is required. There's lots of practice, heavy on practice. And so... These practices and assessments along the way allowed for the V-School to take time out of the equation of what is best learning and allow for the student. There's also the element of online perspective, right? They, they provided the instruction recorded on video so the students could access it when they needed it, right? As opposed to waiting for class to start and waiting to cover it at this time, etc. But allowing for that responsive understanding of how they learn best. Mm-hmm. And this, this again, long process, but the short of it is taking time from the biggest constraint around learning and then understanding by assessment and by practice where someone is at in the process and motivating them through a community of other students or a community of learners, right? That engagement in, in learning with the other learners is huge. Mm-hmm. It can be huge, right? And so that's that's just a little about one of those things I think is a best practice. Yeah, great. Okay. I also like that uh, that you that they are the, not the old, so to say, methods like a lot of presentations and then assessments like just in the past I used, but that there are also new yeah, approaches of methods I used. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, so Christoph, what, what, what do you think? Uh, I think the examples, I think that uh, bootcamp is a very interesting yeah. concept. Yeah. Like also coming up here. Uh, 
perhaps uh, Rudyard, could, could you uh, perhaps yeah. uh, share some tips for companies now? Uh, of course, it's sure. a broad field, uh, but yep. how yep. can can we how can we improve now the learning experience in our let's say in our learning uh, offering? Many companies have learning programs; they have perhaps a catalog yep. and so on. So, so what what are some points to start? Uh, Yeah, very yeah. often but they what, only what have what a learning management system or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, yeah, the tips for the learning experience, that's that's the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, um, there's a number of, I think, just kind of table stake principles in learning that need to be considered. And by sharing these, I, I would hope to imagine these are often widely used. There's also even tools like software tools, right? And I understand those that are listening may not often be the stakeholder in uh, leading a company to purchase new tools. Um, but the fact being is that there are some uh, and there are more and more platforms out there that are looking to level professional development or make that a, um, a very real and very effortful or intentional effort that a company makes. So as far as, far as just the tips, um, I wanted to just draw attention to a few of them. One of them is like mentioned before is the case of outcome driven. And so mm -hmm. when going about learning experiences, this is important for you to create whatever learning experience you are to know what it is the learner going to know at the end of this experience or the end of this course. But it's also very, very important for the learner also to understand that at the beginning of their time spent in this learning experience. So a case of if I'm not convinced as an adult or a professional learner that this is going to improve my skills as made earlier, that point, then I'm not going to spend time doing it. So outcome-driven is very, very important. Uh, a couple of others that come to mind are also like activation of prior knowledge. And this is a fancy way of saying, hey, what have they already learned? And where do I need to start my instruction to be able to best utilize what they already know? And this is often the point of doing like pre-assessments And other tools that allow for you to know where is their knowledge at? What level is it at? And so we know through research that learning experiences are most powerful or impactful when they activate prior knowledge and then tie the new knowledge to the prior knowledge and create those strong connections schemas right is the the fancy way of saying it but making that network bigger and so that's one another is just it's called a cognitive task analysis and mm. like a task analysis you go through in maybe a creating of a instruction or training that hey when you do this task these are the things that you complete right these are the things You have to pull this lever, spin this dial, move this to there, and so on. So there's physical tasks associated or physical actions associated with the task. But there's also a cognitive action that's taken. And these are the ones that are often skipped. There's this concept of automaticity 
which is to say that you have things you do regularly. A professional who's in the same profession for a decade does things in chunks. They don't realize all the small decisions they make because they've done it so often. And so when you go to teach something for an experienced professional, it's often very, very challenging because you didn't realize all the steps you made. And so when teaching someone brand new, they don't and can't follow along because they didn't have all those experiences previously to let them know intuitively what those decisions are. And so a cognitive task analysis is the ability to walk through the thinking portion of every task that's being completed and understand what decisions are made when going through that for an experienced professional. And the trainings that we present uh, for someone, let's say, to level up, we should often consider what decisions is this professional making when in this situation to allow for new learners or young professionals to understand the steps as well. And so that's, and the last one is just around deliberate practice. So it's, it makes, as the, the phrase implies, every time spent practicing must be deliberately focused. Most things fall under practice and not deliberate practice to build those skills. It's the same concept used for like the 10,000 hour rule that anyone can mm. become a expert at something with 10,000 hours of investment, but that's not just 10,000 hours of instruction. That's of course, 10,000 hours of deliberate practice for that outcome they're, they're going for. So those are just some, some of the tips I come to mind. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah. Like outcome driven activation of uh, previous knowledge, cognitive task analysis and deliberate practice. So I think these are very practical tips. Uh, thanks so much. So, so lo yeah. looking at yourself, Rodiard, so, so on your own development. So what, what's on your list uh, this year? So on your to learn list, yeah. uh, many people have to do lists. Not everyone has a to learn list. So yeah, what, what's, what new things do you want to learn? You've, you've got to learn to do, right? Learning by doing. Yeah. Um, so the things that are on my list are, are more focused towards maybe a nuance of product management. And mm -hmm. what I'm looking to learn more about is actually, or actually uh, flex this muscle more is around artificial intelligence and machine learning within product management. It's very, very popular right now. Uh, and most companies want to say they use artificial intelligence or machine, machine learning in their technology. They may not and oftentimes don't use it to its capabilities, but there is this growing uh, question that begs to be asked of every product. But how could we utilize the data that we have to en enhance the experience of the user? How might we make this easier? In the case of UX design, there's the concept, don't make me think, right? You've got to make it so it's so easy and intuitive. There's no instruction Convenient. necessary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so uh, machine learning is something that needs to be considered. Sometimes the answer is no, it won't work for us. And we shouldn't do it for these costs. But oftentimes it's, what if we tried this in a simple, simple way? So that's one thing on my learning list is just improving, not how to do it necessarily, all the modeling, the data science, et cetera, but more about when is it impactful? Um, the other is around just behavioral science applied to products. And that's 
being or thinking of a my role as a product manager synonymous with a choice architect. So I'm architecting choices for a user to make. What are the best ones? What are the most impactful ones? How do I enhance this product based on the behavioral attitudes or the um, patterns that we see already? And so that's just the space I want to dig into more. And then the other is just a personal goal of learning the the ropes of writing and publishing an ebook. I have <laughs> some goals right oh, now. We can work together. Been... Yeah, you can yeah, work so together. I... That's also on my. That's also on my. Is it good? Good. It's it's a case of like I'm not going to be. Uh, I don't expect to be a well-known author, but I want to just know the process so that when there is something I really care about. I mean, I care about things already, but as it continues to grow, then I'm like, yep, I could do that. I could do this and, and better to understand that process. Like, and uh, can you share any, any, any sources, what you use, uh, like podcasts, blogs, or even books, sure. uh, or what, uh, like, uh, in general mm -hmm. or perhaps also, uh, regarding your current challenges? Yeah. So there, there are some books. Um, I know Books may be old-fashioned at this point. Who knows? But <laughs> they ch things change so often, right? You gentlemen know this. Things change so often. How could a book stay relevant, right, if it was published and it stays the same? But I think there are kind of seminal books, right, things that won't ever go away. Mm. Um, and, and so some of the things I've been reading, some are newer. Uh, so man, those books include things like uh, Make It Stick, Right, which is the book around learning science. And that's uh, Peter Brown and some other authors that wrote that book. And so that one's been a great review of learning sciences. There's also a book recently that um, I've loved. It's called The Expertise Economy. And it, again, I know, mm -hmm. Thomas, you mentioned the experience economy, but this one's mm -hmm. newer. But The Expertise Economy, this is David Blake and Kelly Palmer. And they're actually the founders of the LXP platform, or David is at least, the LXP platform Degreed. And oh, they're, okay. oh, that's well they're known. in this yeah. book. Yeah, they're, they're talking about how we upskill or reskill, right, our, our workforces. And so that one is, to me, a very compelling message and book and something I'm implementing as I can. Um, other just ones that kind of won't go away are like the innovator's dilemma, Clayton, mm. Clayton Christensen, um, and also another book of Clayton Christensen's "How Will You Measure Your Life?" Just introspective for learners and professionals alike to say, what does success really look like for me, and how, helping guide towards that. And then podcasts are things like Product School podcasts. Another is this is Product Management podcasts. They're all fantastic as well. Yeah, and I also can recommend like also this to every learning professional to look over the fence uh, and mm. uh, double check on on such sources like the product management uh, sources. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I want to be and, respectful yeah. uh, for your time. I don't know if you have one two uh, more minutes. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. So, Christoph, did you have any further questions? Uh, something I forgot to ask? Um, no, I think we, we've covered all the points that were 
interesting i i have a lot of a lot of ideas where we could dive uh, dive deeper but um yeah this would take much longer than <laughs> <laughs> perhaps we, we make a number two yeah and actually i also wrote i wrote a quite long article on on linkedin so if perhaps we can also link it in the show notes uh, on learning experience design And uh, which is also similar, but some points what you mentioned already, I didn't touch. Uh, so that was, I think, a very, very, very good uh, But uh, maybe, Thomas, one point yeah. Yeah. I would uh, just yeah. uh, with a very short answer, but it's it's one topic I'm very interested in. Um, uh, Rudyard, what, what's your opinion on um, yeah, audio based learning mm. experience so the power of um, mm. talking to others uh, only with audio without pictures without sure. video um, only talking so um, what's your opinion on that yeah I, I personally have been like I think most of us could say and obviously we're we're making a podcast right now mm. that that has been a a powerful or impactful medium that we've has been created in recent in case of how to best design for them there are i think different techniques that even go along with like radio broadcast mm -hmm. uh, principles where there's a lot more of a descriptive language that has to be used technique that allow for people to best understand what you're talking about. Um, there are different things too when you remove visual that you have to, in many ways, visual is used to heighten cues. So if you have a slide that presents or, you know, that accompanies your training, then you have to be able to do it without a slide. And that I think has a lot to do with how you section your learning or at least your your content so these are obviously nitpicky but fact that you have to have clear separations between each segment understanding the music that's played in podcasts is actually really important as a mental cue to let you know that things are changing and so there's and also of course clear this is the question we're asking and then this is the answer to that question so i guess to say is it's only growing and these um The, uh, the experiences that are being designed around your voice, like for products Alexia and mm. Google Home, right? Mm. And so many others, uh, yeah. those are very real and relevant. And there are designers that are specifically focused on that skill of designing for voices. And so it's only growing. And I think, in my opinion, those are some of the most consumable mediums and their need will continue to, in my mind, steadily grow. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for That's that. Of course. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. This is great for us as pod podcast lovers. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sure. It does work well for that. And, and I mean, uh, I've even, um, I'm just going to share quickly, but the fact that there was a, a recommendation that I saw on LinkedIn for people that were looking for employment and the, the recommendation was start a podcast. One of them was, and that would allow you to interview people and then seek uh, interviews through 
sorry, they would connect you to opportunities because they came on your podcast and you shared what was most important to them. I've actually found that same benefit from just informational interviews. So it's really just recording an informational interview, but podcasts mm -hmm. are fantastic ways that are low entry to allow you to access like this instance across countries, across oceans, the experiences of others to benefit the greater good, um, but allow for a sense of I can do something for someone else. So I, I definitely think that podcasts are powerful. Okay, yeah, great. great. So Rudia, also, is there anything what uh, we didn't ask you or anything what, uh, what you would like to touch at the end? Um, we, I don't know if it's important and maybe dilute from, mm -hmm. but the case of just the, no, maybe not. I was thinking about the remote work or there's another possible topic, but I think I'm sure it would be great not to jump around for learners. So, and it would be probably hidden in the bottom, let's say this, that content. So maybe not. I don't, I don't think there's anything that's left out that I think is crucial in my opinion. All right. So, yeah, thanks very much uh, for taking the time, Rudyard. And, of course, also thanks for everyone who listened. Uh, yeah, we, we hope you found that uh, interesting. I think this was a very interesting uh, discussion. We will have some more also on the topic of experience management, experience design. Uh, yeah, thanks so much. And, uh, Rudyard, I wish you all the best on your journey. I think that's a very important topic uh, and mission you work on, like to... To bridge that skills gap uh, skill, uh, between demand and supply of skills. So, thanks again for being here today in our podcast. Absolutely. Thank you both to you gentlemen. And it's always a pleasure to talk more about how to design for learners. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye bye. bye, -bye. Thanks. Bye.